Amen. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll be preaching from the whole chapter this morning, but we're only going to read for now verses 14 through 22. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 14 through 22. And as we're opening up there, uh, they're not in here, but y'all can tell them I said this. All the people who are volunteering today, now some may be in here who have already done a lot of work, people who are volunteering today, be sure when you see them uh, to tell them thank you. And I'd just like to say thanks for all the people that have put so much hard work into making this auction a success. There are many who are working on the food and working on different things out there and doing different stuff. And she's not in here, so I won't embarrass her. But uh, it won't embarrass her for me to say this, is that Gina Harbison in our office does an amazing amount of work for the auction and recruits volunteers and helps make sure it's a success. So when you see Gina, be sure to say something to her. She doesn't do it for thanks or glory or anything like that, but she does put a lot of work into the auction. So I think it's good for everyone um, to know. Well, if you have your Bibles open there to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24, and uh, let me just say, we thought we were having a battery issue with my microphone. It's got brand new batteries in it, so it's not. So, Scotty, if that happens again, we'll just switch to the pulpit mic, and I'll turn this thing off, okay? And you guys all know what's going to happen there. Nobody has to panic, all right? And if the pulpit mic goes out, I'm great at hollering, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. If you have your Bibles open there, stand with me, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that, no, that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. She took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. And she laid them on donkeys and she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And Father, we thank you for the gift of wisdom that you've given us from your word, from godly friends. And oh God, we pray that we would heed your wisdom in all of life's experiences. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, several years back, um, I read a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. That book instantly became one of my favorite books. There are so many great things to learn from the book. It tells the story of the political prowess, what Goodwin calls the political genius of Abraham Lincoln. And specifically, it really deals with, as the title implies, um, Lincoln's willingness to create a team of rivals, that is to put many of his own political opponents, those who had run against him for the Republican nomination for president, to put them on his cabinet, to bring them together as part of his team because of the great travail that was presented before our country at the time. The screenplay for the 2012 movie Lincoln, which Steven Spielberg directed, was based on Team of Rivals. I'm sure many of you have seen that film, Lincoln. Um, from 2012. In the film, though, there's a great scene that I love, and it struck me as I watched the movie. I don't think it's something that happened historically, but it's what's said is very Lincoln-esque and very reflective of the way Lincoln talked. I have a book in my study called The Wit and Wisdom of Abraham Lincoln, and he was known to use turns of phrases and folksy aphorisms and other things like that to sort of get his point across. And so the screenwriter obviously did his homework and presented a, a situation in the movie where Lincoln is involved with one of his many arguments and debates with Congressman Thaddeus Stevens. Um, Lincoln's played uh, by Daniel Day-Lewis, a, a masterful performance by him, and then Stevens is played by Tommy Lee Jones. And so you can kind of put in your mind the two of them arguing and Thaddeus Stevens is pressing upon Lincoln the need for sort of radical reform after the Civil War. There's days leading up to, it's in the days leading up to the Emancipation Proclamation, and they're in a great debate over how these things should be handled. Thaddeus Stevens being much more radical in terms of how he thought everyone should be treated than Lincoln. Stevens is frustrated with Lincoln's moderation, and he challenges his moral compass. And I want you to hear how Daniel Day Lewis's Abraham Lincoln responds. Lincoln said, A compass I learned when I was surveying. It'll point you true north from where you're standing, but it's got no advice about the swamps, the deserts, and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination you plunge ahead, heedless of obstacles, and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, what's the use in knowing true north. In other words, what Lincoln's trying to get through to Stevens is that he does know the way true north is, but perhaps we run straight to it, we're going to find ourselves in a bigger mess than the one we had before. And in hindsight, I think history has borne out the fact that Lincoln's wisdom in Reconstruction and the loss of Abraham Lincoln in the process of Reconstruction, first of all, was one of the greatest blessings to our country and certainly our region, and one of the great losses our country has ever known uh, in its history to lose Lincoln in a time when he was needed most. In other words, what Lincoln is saying is that a good moral compass does know where true north is, but it also has the ability to navigate treacherous terrain to get there. In many ways, this is what we mean when we talk about wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how and when to apply what you know. Knowledge is so important and so essential, and in many ways, our culture is drowning in knowledge. I mean, we, we have more data presented before us in a single day, just maybe even just through our smartphone, than someone like Abraham Lincoln would have encountered in a lifetime. 
It's, it's an amazing amount of data that we're presented with. We know things and can contain more knowledge in a single head than any humans in history have been able to do. We can just know many things. In the past, people were not limited by their intelligence, but by terrain, by limited ability to connect. But now you can know almost anything anytime you want to know it. Some of you might have already Googled and ordered team of rivals to arrive at your house by Tuesday. That tells you how quickly we can have knowledge. We're drowning in knowledge. But the question is, are we drowning in wisdom? We may know more than we've ever known, but we, do we know how to apply it in the best ways? We may have abilities to do things in ways that we've always been able to, in ways that we've always dreamed of being able to do, but are we using that knowledge appropriately? This is the question of wisdom. As we turn our attention to this scene in 1 Samuel, I want you to note that it's meant to highlight the need for wisdom. As we're introduced and reintroduced to these different figures, in this chapter, I think we'll be able to see wisdom and folly for ourselves. Wisdom and folly presented in stark relief. The author of Samuel is brilliant in the way that he's also tying Nabal together with Saul, presenting them as similar characters, but we'll be surprised at who else might act like Saul just a little bit in this chapter. As we're introduced to them, we'll be able to see wisdom and folly for ourselves. And as we go through this passage this morning, what I hope we can do is see three truths about wisdom. I want to show you today three truths that will help you grow in godly wisdom, to help you walk in the way of wisdom. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Wisdom is unselfish. Whatever self-centeredness is, wisdom is the opposite of that. Wisdom is selfless. We're immediately in this passage introduced to a man who is defined by his possessions. I love the way Woody read the text. He highlighted all the right things. He was very rich. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he's shearing sheep in Carmel. And this is a time of, of the year that is a great business venture. Shearing sheep is a good thing. It's a way to make money. And so associated with it is a great time of celebration, maybe a mini feast, sort of like a mini harvest feast happens during this time as well. It's a time when a wise man who's as rich as Nabal should feel big-hearted and open to generosity. It's no uh, mistake, right? That we are most generous at times like Christmas, times of feasting, times of giving, times when we're able to take count of all the ways the Lord's blessed us in the previous year. This man's defined by his possessions. He's defined by his work, but he's also defined by his name. And there's a little, little, a little pun in the Bible that's lost on us because we don't know Hebrew, and that's okay. But his name Nabal, translated literally, means fool foolish or churlish his name means now i don't know uh what kind of mother nabal had but scholars do sort of try to wonder why would someone name their uh their son nabal more than likely uh there's a possibility that uh he was named this and it was originally in another language or something like that there's some other meaning but the bible is intentionally drawing out the fact that at the very least rhymes and sounds very much like the Hebrew word for foolishness or for foolish, Nabal. We're then introduced, though, to someone else. 
his wife, Abigail, he, he's presented as harsh and badly behaved, rude or vulgar, churlish, boorish, uh, a crude, a bulging, beastly man. He's, he's presented in a very negative light. But Abigail, his wife, is presented differently. Discerning, the Bible says, and beautiful. And soon Abigail will prove her wisdom in contrast to her wicked and foolish husband. The story then has introduced us to two new characters, two characters we didn't know before, a vulgar man named Nabal, a beautiful and wise woman named Abigail, and now the lens shifts to someone else. David had heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, therefore he sent a group of ten men to entreat Nabal to make official the relationship that David has already initiated. You see, David has been protecting his shepherds instead of profiting from them as he could have. Now, we don't know David's motives here. Some people have said this is sort of like a protection racket. David's sort of Tony Soprano, and he sent ten wise guys to shake down the guy who he's been protecting out on the street. But in all sincerity, there's a strong possibility that David's simply doing what's right, and now that he knows the means of Nabal, he wants to make official this relationship. Either way, the right thing for Nabal to do, whether David did this in pretense or earnestly, either way, the right thing for Nabal to do would be to recognize and to honor the way David has treated his men. David wants to benefit, understandably, from the riches of Nabal in return for his goodwill and protection. Now, notice the way Nabal answers. I, I don't want you to, to miss this. Listen to verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, listen to this great insult. I mean, if, if you study insults, this is a great insult. Y'all ever known anybody that's too big for their britches? I've known people that are too big for their britches. I, I'm assuming y'all know that that proper term. That's another piece of knowledge, I suppose, we could access via our smartphones if you needed to. I don't know the origin of the phrase, but you know the meaning. You know it when you see it, don't you? Nabal's gotten a little too big for his britches. He's reminded of how rich he is, and so he lays down this wonderful insult. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Clearly, he has enough knowledge to know that David's on the run from the king. He's on the run from Saul, and so his implication is you're no more than a runaway slave. You're a small man. Who are you to me? Now, us, the reader, we know who David is, don't we? We know what's really going on in David's life. We know that even in the most practical terms, if you look at this in the dirtiest sense possible, a shrewd businessman, knowing what we know, would be very unwise not to jump on board with David. In other words, buy while the stock is low, because one day the stock's going to be a lot higher. Nabal instead foolishly answers. And I want you to notice why he answers this way, I think. I think the text kind of shows us something about his character and integrity here. Shall I take, verse 11, my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know? Where? In other words, the author is intentional here in contrasting Nabal and Abigail, but here we see the way that he's also comparing Nabal with King Saul. He's showing us the way that Nabal is beginning to act like Saul. He sees the things around him as primarily belonging to him. 
In other words, he's being selfish. He's being self-centered. He's believing that Nabal is the center of Nabal's universe. And in 13, verse 13, we see the way that the rage of David is stoked. And David vows to be sure that no male among him will be alive. Now, part of what I think the author wants us to see here is the fact that the Lord honors the wise and not the foolish. But this story is not as clear as it seems at first glance. Clearly, Nabal's acting like Saul here, but guess who else is nearly about to act like Saul? Clearly, Nabal is a fool here. That's clear. But guess who else is about to act foolish here? Who else is about to make a foolish mistake? Who else is about to dishonor the Lord? Notice what David says in verse 13. Every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword and David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage David is hot he's angry he's heard and received this insult and it's time to do what to defend the honor that's his he's going to make sure that everyone knows who is to be feared who is to be honored foolishness brothers and sisters is self-centered, but wisdom is focused on others, God included. Wisdom is unselfish. Self-centeredness will lead us to foolish decisions all the time. If our focus is us, if our focus is how we feel, if our focus is on our anger, if our focus is on our pride, if our focus is on what we deserve, if our focus is on my meat and my water and my things and my honor and my dignity and my glory, my provisions for my men, then all the time our focus will be a focus of foolishness. We'll do the wrong things at the wrong times. You see, I will say nothing feels more natural than looking out for number one. It's always the wisest course of action. Worldly wisdom, common sense, our own gut intuition always point in the way of looking out for number one, for focusing on ourselves. But true wisdom is never idolatrously self-centered. I talked with a group of friends last night. I was having dinner with some friends, and the conversation came to entitlement. Just the kind of spirit and attitude of entitlement and how frustrating it is. And it began to make me consider the own ways in which I act and behave entitled in my life. But entitlement is really something that Christians ought to be allergic to, is it not? When we consider the fact that, I don't know, many of you in this room right now have great standing in the world. Many of you do. I have such respect for so many of you. I, I admire what you've been able to accomplish in your lives. And others of you may feel like, I don't have any respect in this world. I don't know. I, I respect all of you in many ways. But many of you are very accomplished. You can begin to think, you know, I deserve things. Thing, things are owed to me. Every one of us feels entitled in a drive through line. Anybody in our culture with a $10 bill in their pocket feels like they're entitled to all sorts of things at that point. I wonder, though, if unselfishness, if others focus, if a lack of entitlement might not be one of the most important aspects of Christian witness in these days. I don't know if you've ever been in a customer service situation where you were not being treated the way you felt like you should be treated 
and you've been nice to the person anyway, but the way people act when you do that <laughs> is unbelievable. I mean, the way they respond is unbelievable. You would think that you gave them a $100 tip sometimes just when you're kind. More than once, I know you will have the opportunity when you choose kindness, when you're entitled to something, you will have the opportunity. And mark me down, if, if, if at next year's auction, if you try this this year consistently, and what I'm saying is not true, I'll buy your lunch at next year's auction, okay? I guarantee you, if you'll be kind when there's no reason to be kind, if you'll be unentitled when there's a good way to be, in, good reason for you to feel entitled, you will have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone in the next year. You will have the opportunity to just simply say, I'm treating you like this because my King and Savior came into the world and did not demand to be treated the way he deserved to be treated. And the way I deserve to be treated is a lot less than him, so I can't act like that either, right? We, we, I love you because Jesus loves me and he loves you. You will have the opportunity to share the gospel. And walking wisely will ultimately pay off because people will begin to see the beauty and glory of Jesus in your life. Brothers and sisters, walk wisely. Fools are self-centered, but wisdom is unselfish. S second of all, not only is wisdom unselfish, but second of all, wisdom listens. Wisdom listens that's a really you know that's a really good doggy bag point for everyone wisdom listens that's something you can tell yourself this week right because there will be a moment this week when you don't want to listen right maybe you're mature enough to not put your fingers in your ears but in your heart we all know what you're doing we know you're putting your fingers in la, 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 la. we know what you're doing in your heart sometimes wisdom listens now do y'all remember this beautiful and wise this beautiful and discerning wife of Nabal, Abigail. Well, one of the young shepherds filled her in on what was going on. She comes to Abigail, and so he comes to Abigail. And listen, God bless this guy who's sort of taking a risk here and going and talking to his master's wife and telling her this. In verses 14 through 17, he comes to her and says, Listen, you know, this is going on, and this guy it probably means harm for us if we don't make this right. And so immediately, Abigail, Abigail springs to action. She responds in the way that Nabal should have responded. She collects up an appropriate offering, wine, grain, meat, fruit, and more, and she heads out toward David without the knowledge of her husband. Now, when you come up to a group of hungry soldiers and men who are on an expedition like David's on, they're not well equipped. Several years ago, I read one of my favorite books called Undaunted Courage uh, by Stephen Ambrose, and it's about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And part of what he would talk about in there is the way the men would get rowdy and unruly when they didn't have things to eat. And so the great delicacy would be they would kill beavers and eat beaver tail. And so you can imagine if the men on the Lewis and Clark expedition were excited about beaver tail, you can imagine how these 400 soldiers felt when this great, uh, this great bounty of provision came down the line. These beautiful things. Abigail's treating him like he ought to be treated. She heads out toward David without the knowledge of her husband. And as she approaches David, the author reminds us of how hot David's temper is at Nabal. Verses 20 through 22, which we've just read a few moments ago, David is saying again, there will not be one male among them who's left alive when I get there. But I want you to notice what Abigail does. At great personal risk and potential harm to herself, she bows 
low and a great show of obeisance before David, showing and demonstrating her contrition and humility on behalf of her husband. And she helps to diffuse David's temper by bowing down to the ground in this way and accepting Nabal's guilt on herself. She explains the foolishness of Nabal, but I want you to notice what a poignant note she strikes in verse 26. Listen to what she says. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as the ball. You see what she is? She is an instrument of the Lord who was sent to David. She's giving such godly counsel to David. She's saying, you don't have to take vengeance into your own hand. You don't have to do what you feel like you need to do. God is in control of that. And so she succeeds. She succeeds in talking David out of taking vengeance against Nabal into his own hands. And she mentions in the process, and when all this comes to pass, if you think of it, remember your servant. Talking about herself. Verses 32 through 35, David calms down, he slows down, and realizes that the way he's about to act is the wrong way to act. Brothers and sisters, wisdom slows down and wisdom listens. You see the way that the author of Samuel, in presenting David as king to us, this whole story is the story ultimately of how David becomes king. Over and over again, it's important for the author to demonstrate that David's character and integrity is reflected in the fact that he does not have innocent blood on his hands, that he's not out killing people for the wrong reasons, that he didn't take the throne by force. And can you imagine how good things would look when it's time to start uniting the kingdom if David had been out on these expeditions of vengeance like this? No, Abigail is stepping in and giving godly wisdom and godly counsel at the right time. And it's important that David listens. She comes along and settles him down. It's interesting to me then to see the way that the Bible presents the wisdom and righteousness of Abigail over and against both Nabal and David. Abigail is being presented as sort of a wise, understanding, and indeed beautiful hero in this passage. Sisters, I want to say a word to you today. I think women are often uniquely gifted with wisdom. And especially in this regard. My, my wife, for example, can so often see and perceive and speak to things that I just totally miss. Th- things I can't see, things I don't perceive. And it's been more than once that um, I don't own a sword, but I think you understand what I mean. I'm ready to go on the warpath about something. And my wife, Whitney, will so often say, hey, why don't you calm down? Why don't you think about this a little bit? That's not a smart thing to do. And then oftentimes in hindsight, I'll hear from my wife, you know, I don't know if any of you guys have this experience, where she is helping me receive wisdom in hindsight for the next time I do something. So, Matt, Matt, you cannot do stuff like that, son, you know, and uh, so I, I listen and hear. Listen, I don't think it's a mistake that David, David's son Solomon used a woman in the book of Proverbs to personify wisdom, because so often it's women who have this unique gift of bringing wisdom into these situations. It's one of the things I love about First Baptist Church. Uh, Not only do we have a tradition and a precedent of having women in positions of leadership within our church, but our church constitution and bylaws in certain places require that women be in certain places, in certain committees, in certain groups. It's a recognition, I think, of the unique wisdom 
and the unique ability that God has given women uh, to help speak into certain situations. And for that, sisters, we're so grateful. But I want to encourage all of you here, not just the women, but the men and the women, to lean into being molded and cultivating, molded by and cultivating godly wisdom, learning wisdom from the Bible. I, I want to press upon all of us to be people who listen to godly counsel. Now, the first way we do this is to listen to the Word, right? To read the Bible. Th- this is one reason why I love preaching the Old Testament. I love preaching the Old Testament because we can begin then to see the contours, the valleys, the peaks, all the different ways that wisdom bears itself out in the pages of Scripture. We familiarize ourselves with the ways and means of God. It cultivates patience in us. Even though we know these truths in explicit form from the New Testament, it's so important to look back and see how God has acted and how His people have responded throughout the years. Listen to the Word. Listen to the Spirit. Listen to your own conscience. Listen to friends who will speak the Word to you. Hear and receive godly wisdom. Wisdom slows down. Wisdom doesn't make rash decisions. And we must abandon our pride to listen well. Which is why wisdom is unselfish. And therefore, also, wisdom listens. But finally, wisdom looks ahead. Wisdom looks ahead. Another way to say this maybe is wisdom gets out of the moment. As the chapter concludes, while Abigail is doing the wise and prudent thing, Nabal continues to act foolishly. In the moments where he could have lost everything. You notice he's not even sitting back thinking, like, I wonder if I did the right thing in uh, turning away this guy who, oh yeah, happens to have an army. I wonder if that was a bad idea. He's not doing that. What's he doing? He is carousing. Um, he, is, he is participating in dissipation, as the Bible would say, drunkenness. He's in this great feast. He's a glutton. And so he is enjoying his wine and his water and his meat and his things. He's eating and drinking and being merry. And in ten days, he will die. You see what the Bible says? In the moments he could have lost everything, he's feasting, quote, like a king, getting drunk, ignoring the real problems he has. The next morning Nabal is sober and my guess is hungover and Abigail explains to him what nearly happened and what was a headache goes into something far worse a stroke a heart attack something happens and the Bible says his heart died within him and he became as a stone and then in about 10 days later the Lord struck Nabal I like King James a little better he smoked Nabal and he died Now notice how David responds to this when he hears the news about what has happened. When David heard, verse 39, that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. You see, brothers and sisters, wisdom looks forward in trust that the Lord will handle what needs to be handled. That God is just, that God is good, that he means well for his people. Now, make no mistake, and you'll hear me say this, and you've heard me say this, and I hope and pray that my tenure here as your pastor so far has been a track record of this, that we are called to be people of action. 
we are called to do and to act. You know, we don't, we don't, as the old saying goes, we don't pray to God for a hole and lean on a shovel, right? There are times when it's just time to act and do and work. But I want you to say this, at the same time, I've never seen good come from us trying to force things to happen according to our will or on our own timeline. I've never seen good things happen from us being rash and trying to get out ahead of the Lord. Now you might say, well, how do we know the difference? You're going to hate me when I say it. Wisdom is how we tell the difference. Growing in wisdom is how we tell the difference. Countless times as a pastor in large and small ways, I've seen the Lord do things. I was frustrated because I didn't feel like I could do them. I wanted to do it. I was ready to do it. Everybody had their swords strapped on, and through godly counsel or something in the Word or some other situation, I was held back from doing it. And then guess what happens? Within time, I see it happen in its own due course. The Lord does it. Brothers and sisters, we must look forward and know that God is in control and that God is guiding all things according to His own purpose. Foolishness lives only in the moment and lives believing that only what we do gets done. Wisdom believes that God is at work and that forcing things to go our way is never a path to godliness or even a good life. Ultimately, what we see in all of this, we look at the whole passage as a whole, ultimately what do we see? We see that the author is trying to show us that wisdom clings to God's anointed. Wisdom clings to the Messiah, to the Christ of God. David is the anointed king, and Nabal sees him as just another runaway slave, but Abigail sees him for what he is. Abigail clings to the Lord's anointed. She's wise. She helps. She presents us in this way. Wisdom lives by grace. David is nearly foolish, but God rescues him and holds him back from blood guilt at the last moment. Wisdom lives by grace. David clinging to what is right, even when it feels good to do what is wrong. Ultimately, in this passage, we are being pointed, I think, to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Bible says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We are pointed to Christ, who according to worldly wisdom was weak and despised, Nothing makes more sense than the way the devil told Jesus to save the world in the 40 days of tempting in the wilderness. And when he's there in the wilderness, throw yourself down and let a great miracle be happened that, that, you're, that you're saved in that way. Turn these stones into bread and sustain yourself in this way. Why don't you just let, let me give you all the kings of the world right now? All you have to do is bow down and worship me. It makes perfect sense. In fact, if you were to run this by a uh, some sort of a committee or a consultancy firm, they would have encouraged Jesus. No, I feel like this is the best route. There's a lot of suffering to be avoided here at the end of the process, if you haven't noticed. No, Jesus seemed weak. He seemed despised. Nothing seems more foolish like a, than a crucified king. But through Jesus, what was God doing? He was displaying his ultimate power. And yes, the Bible says his wisdom. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Christ is wisdom itself. But also we recognize that the world is shaped by the gospel. Wisdom conforms to Christ. My friends, wisdom is unselfish. Wisdom listens. Wisdom doesn't live just for the moment. Wisdom looks ahead by faith, trusting the Lord. Wisdom, most of all, is Christ-centered. Brothers and sisters, would you walk in the way of wisdom today? Oh, I hope and pray you will.
I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I hope and pray that you will abandon the foolishness of pride and sin today and wisely turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, seeing Him for what He is, I believe you will be saved. You'll be saved from the wrath of God. You'll be saved from eternity in hell. And you'll be promised life forever with Christ. Would you trust Him today? Second of all, you may be a believer and you may just need a few moments to pray. You take this time here in just a moment. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. Oh, what a joy it would be for you to come forward today to let us know that you want to be a member here at First Baptist Church. It'd be my joy to talk to you about what that means. After this prayer, oh please, would you come? Let's pray together.